Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Rob Buxton. Rob is a partner at AGGC Partners, a technology investment bank where he leads coverage on the DAS, data as a service, and SaaS markets. Rob has completed over 300 financings and M&A transactions in his career. Rob, welcome to World of DAS. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Very nice to be here. Yeah, excited. Uh, now, I really want to dive into, you have a really cool sector report on DAS that comes out regularly. I'm a big reader, and we're going to link your DAS report into the show notes and stuff like that. And you've got a lot of really interesting things. One of the ways you think, the way you you describe data companies is you think of them as an upstream data company and a downstream data company. Explain to us what the difference between those two are. Yeah, so we look at upstream companies as those where their primary reason for being is provide third-party data, like SafeGraph yep. would be a classic example of, of an upstream company. Downstream company is a company that heavily utilizes their own internal data plus third-party data more in an application sense to provide an answer, provide a solution. And so it can be a combination of both. So a good example of that might be Zoom Info where they started out as a classic sort of contact data provider, but now they have morphed into also sales, sales efficiency, sales, sales and marketing data provider. So they Zoom Info started as an upstream company, and now they still have the upstream business, but they also have a downstream business as well. Exactly, exactly. And so when I did the research, there's, you know, there's some pure plays, you know, again, like SafeGraph and People Data Labs and a few of those folks, but there's a lot more sort of integrated folks that are utilizing both their own internal data, sharing that data with and monetizing that data, as well as using those to deliver applications. And certainly the downstream market is a is certainly a bigger TAM today than the upstream market, right? Yep. Is there a sense of how those TAMs might grow over the next 10 years? Like, do you expect the upstream TAM to grow faster because it's a smaller base? Or do you, how do you think of that over time? Yeah, no, that's exactly. So first, you probably noticed this as well, but the market sizing forecasts for upstream DAS market are pretty much non-existent from what I've researched. Right. IDC has their, know, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Now IDC has their concepts of DAS and they put market size in it for like 10 billion, but that's like a fraction of the SaaS application market. So I'm really not certain about the market size, but what I do know is that there is no shortage of internal data. And you know, most organizations also need to turn to external data in order to execute a variety of business processes. And so for decades, information services companies and data brokers have provided data sets to service those needs. The classic example would be um, you know, like credit scoring companies like Experian, TransUnion, Equifax, you know, DMB. But in the past 10 years, there's been a dramatic growth in new companies that have entered the market, right? Working to really fulfill the need for new areas of data that have helped end customers streamline their operations, supply chain marketing, et cetera. So, so the market's gone way beyond legacy finance, real estate marketing into like numerous end markets like geospatial, ID verification, retail, CPG, healthcare, hospitality, and you know, many others. So, and those new DAS vendors have emerged that are providing new sets of data, like location data, which is obviously near and dear to your heart, people data, organization data, intent data, and others. And they're supplying the need for that wider variety of end markets. And that's growth is really being driven by you know, the sheer volume of data that's being made available and really the realization that data is a competitive differentiator. And what does it make sense? Like, so you've got these upstream data companies that sometimes like Zoom Info that became a downstream company. 
maybe you'll have a downstream company that becomes an upstream company. Like when does it make sense for them to cross over to the other side? Yeah, I don't see a lot of examples of downstream companies becoming a pure, like pure play, certainly upstream. Much um, rarer. They, yeah, yeah, much rarer. Yeah. In my view, so I think data companies need to leverage their data sets. And so the data tends to fit together under a common domain or theme, right? So once a DAS company has achieved critical market share in that particular focus area, and along with it, a, you know, a larger base of customers that it can leverage to be profitable, I think at that time, it seems to make sense that an upstream company can think about crossing over. You know, as you said, we've seen that playbook with ZoomInfo, DNB's done similarly. There are other examples, but if you're thinking about crossing over too soon, I think you dilute your data franchise. I think there are risks of losing some of your customers to become competitors to that solution and solutions market. Plus the investment needed to go into a vertical play isn't trivial and, and you really need the scale of a successful horizontal DAS business to help support that investment. Now, you also point out in your report that there's this kind of like internal versus external data usage continuum where if you're a, a big retailer, let's say McDonald's or something like first, it makes sense to really focus on your internal data and squeeze a lot of that juice out of the internal data. But at some point, there's some asymptote of how much juice you can yeah. squeeze out of your internal data. And at that point, it makes sense to start investing in external data. Like, how do you see that market evolving? Yeah, I think certainly some industries are adopting it at a greater pace than others. If you look at the hedge fund industry is a great example. Their growth in the use of external data as, as they've gotten better at managing and understanding and using that data has been phenomenal. Well, so they don't have much internal data to start with, right? Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, I don't know how many hedge funds are out there, but it's got to be over a thousand in, in any of size, I'm guessing, you know, using third-party data to gain that competitive advantage. You know, and then you're also seeing like a greater role for our data marketplaces, right? And so whether open or closed. And I think other industries probably aren't as far as long, you know, like I think of like uh, the telecom industry, probably a good example in the sector where they have a ton of internal customer data they use to improve their network yep. and, and monetize that customer data. But it's really resident to their own CDRs and tend not to use external data as much to enhance that profile. Okay. Interesting. And there are a lot of companies where they're still not so sophisticated that they can even use their internal data is there a point where it's like, okay, let's just invest more in using our internal data. Let's build our data science resources. Let's build out our tools to go do that. And then how would you know, is there like some sort of point on the curve where you would know, okay, now it makes sense to go look for external data? Yeah. I mean, it's sort of the data exhaust question, right? I, I think, I don't know if there's a pinpoint there, but I think Probably with some of their companies hit a wall, perhaps in, in, in marketing, you know, sort of the sales and marketing arena, they started hitting a wall in their own rate of growth on customer acquisition. Maybe that's the time they start looking at, at external data to enhance their own data sets. But I think definitely those most, you know, those most successful SaaS companies really need to understand their own internal data before they can effectively look at, you know, and set the parameters of what external data sets look like. But that said, if you look at a lot of the, the DAS companies, They've definitely benefited by the boom in venture funding of startups that don't have the core data sets to effectively compete, right? So yep. these startups utilizing DAS vendors, third-party data sets as a way to outsource that data collection and aggregation function to more quickly and cost-effectively penetrate their own end market with the right targeted data. And so that the you know the whole concept around democratizing access to data, you know, as DAS vendors talk about all the time, that's you know, that's been hugely successful for all these startup SaaS companies. Now, these upstream data companies, 
they tend to become like winner take most over time, or I'd be interested to know if you agree with that. And if you do agree with that, do you think like M&A is going to accelerate in this market over the next few years? Yeah. So I, I do agree with your view. It's kind of a Darwinistic view, probably spells trouble for like the fourth, fifth or sixth player in each domain, which has a tendency to lead to consolidation. I mean, you've seen it in a number of other tech sectors as well, you know, semis, storage, et cetera, right? Where you kind of get to a top three market and then the others um, have a difficult time. So, and just as the sheer number of participants in the sector has increased and funding has increased, you are seeing more M&A. I think in 2021, there was a record of M&A of like 100 deals, the way I track it, and you know, over 20 billion in, in value. So, and then that was like more than double the prior year. So a very strong M&A environment. I think you have some elements as larger vendors look to expand their data reach with some of those to fill in gaps. We've seen demand-based acquire inside view and demand matrix to you know look to create a one-stop shop for core B2B assets. Sixth Sense, you know, acquired Slintel, I believe it was for intent data recently, Veresk, you know, acquired Infotour for consumer identity management. So there is a fairly healthy MA environment, and particularly as companies look to round out and expand on their data capabilities. And how is that M&A environment, given like the recent downturn, we're doing this and having this discussion in July 2022, yeah. how do you think that the, the recent downturn is going to affect the M&A environment? Yeah, so I'll give you sort of a broader view. What we've seen is that the market's still fairly healthy despite the volatility. What's happened is that there's been a difficulty for companies that have on the M&A side, there's been a number of companies that have been active that have been acquired, particularly in the middle market, because there's just still a ton of money out there sitting on the sidelines, both strong balance sheets from corporate acquirers, as well as the PE environment. Right. On the one hand, you could say that the market for M&A will slow because the acquirers are going to be more cautious. On the other hand, you might think the market for M&A would accelerate because the target's are not going to be able to raise money from traditional venture folks, and they're going to be more open to a sales process. So which one do you think might win out? Yeah, no, I think the middle market, which kind of where we play is, you know, is driven by highly disciplined PE growth equity buyers. And they, they never saw the same level of speculative fever that, that the public and VC market saw. So yeah. the PEs that drive this market have sit on like a record over a trillion of dry powder with the top players continue to raise funds in a really at an incredible pace. So while there's been some compression in middle market valuations, we are continuing to see deals for, for good companies get done at strong multiples. And I've seen very little slowdown in deal making. That said, that you know the bar is definitely higher today with buyers laser focused on capital efficiency and profitability. And even despite the volatility, VC funding and deal toll still remain above you know, levels in 2020. So yeah, it's, there's definitely some nuances to today's market versus 2021, but it's you know we're still seeing strong activity. And traditionally, DAS companies are more efficient from a cash perspective than SaaS companies. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. You actually see that on the public DAS companies. If you look at 2021, anyway, they grew about 30%. You know, the smaller cap DAS companies and the larger folks grew about 10%. But more importantly, at scale, most of the DAS vendors are very profitable with EBITDA margins of 30% plus. And as you're talking about versus a SaaS application company, you know, product development R&D is not a big as an expense. And that usually represents less than 20% or, or more of total revenue. So you can get strong economies of scale on the infrastructure of the DAS company and the marginal, and I think you've said this before, but the marginal cost of data acquisition 
but it does decline with the size of data set and the maturity of the data products. So it becomes very prompt. There's this idea in the market or this, this is saying like every company is a data company. We certainly hear that a lot today, but in reality, like very few companies are actually monetizing their data. They might be using it internally, but they're not selling that data exhaust. Like, do you think that's going to shift or do you think that is just going to stay the norm? I, I think that this is a sheer anecdotal answer, but because businesses today, you know, across every industry are rooted in data and organizations increasingly rely on, on data to, to drive their decision-making process, I believe we're far from data exhaust. I mean, just look at the growth in data scientists, right, as a reflection of the fact we haven't hit that exhaust tipping point. Yeah. Companies are increasingly using, utilizing data to generate value for the customers and employees and, and their own businesses. So, no, I, I really don't think we're at, we're at that data exhaust point. You know, in your report, you said the biggest share of companies, maybe 30%, are in the process of creating some sort of data-driven culture right now and translating that into the impact of their business. Are there leading indicators to suggest like when a company is more data ready? Yeah. I mean, again, I think you know, mentioned the data scientists, you know, I think yeah. that's, you know, open Just Rex. Like the number data exactly, scientists. exactly. Yeah. Okay. The open, you know, that's a good leading indicator. I think the presence of a data management office is a great leading indicator that a company's leadership's, you know, scaling up to, to deliver this data driven culture. And organizations that have engineered for data velocity and the modern data stack and have clear owners for the data products and data governance tend to be the best companies, I think, of examples of data-driven enterprises. Now, right now, like companies spend so much more on software than they do on data. Like on average, I would say a company might have at least like 20 times the number of software vendors as data vendors. And the, the analogy would be like if you're a baker and you have like 20 types of baking equipment, but you only have one ingredient. As the tools and software get better, do you think there's like a flipping that happens where companies have fewer tools and more data sources? No, no. I really think the number and spend on software tools for an enterprise will continue to vastly exceed that of data of vendors. I, or software tools encompass you know a much broader set of functionality across the enterprise yep. from, from the IT to the network, right? And so in the data sector, I think customers will center on a shorter list of data sources they see as, as most accurate and easy to use for their domain. I mean, it won't be one data provider, but I think you see the short list is perhaps one plus a few others. And as we've discussed, there's going to be a natural tendency toward a few leaders in each data segment. And those end customers, I think you're going to pick those leaders from, from those sources. And most data companies, like they're selling the data. They're not necessarily like gleaming or acting on the insights from the data. How do you see that evolving over time? I don't see data companies sort of going outside of their core DNA, if, if, if that's your question. I mean, they're, they're really their, their options to expand are either horizontally data through acquisitions we've discussed or, or to go vertical by expanding application solutions. I think otherwise, it's just going to be too much of a transformational M&A and, and you rarely see those types of transactions, Broadcom aside, but those are really hard pivots to make. And as, you, as you're thinking about like the industries within data that you think are going to have more consolidation, more M&A activity over the next few years, and maybe the industries that you think will have less M&A activity, like, and you're a banker, so you got to focus your own time. Where do you think is going to have more M&A activity? And where do you think might not be as right for M&A activities? Yeah, so I'll limit it to sort of the data sector. I honestly think there's a wide variety of data providers across, you know, in different domains, and I think it's, you know, it's it's going to be picking up, those leaders are going to start picking up new data sets. And I don't know if I have a really insights in terms of particular domains that are going to be more attractive than others. 
I just think that there's just a sheer volume of new companies that come out and, and the growth in external data is going to drive a lot of the M&A. One of the reasons, so SaaS companies are like so much more easier to understand than DAS companies is there's been over a thousand unicorns and yeah. SaaS have been created over the last 20 years. In the DAS market, there's really just a couple like Zoom Info that have been created in the last 20 years. And so there's this whole language in SaaS, some of which is very applicable to DAS, but well, it's LTV to CAC or all these very, very specific language and vocabulary that exists in SaaS. Do you think there is going to be more sophistication or how do you think that sophistication in the DAS will evolve in terms of like a common language, a common way of evaluating business, whether it's a private market investor, a public market investor, um, operational executives, et cetera? Yeah. So when I speak to investors, private investors predominantly, I think they get DAS companies, for example, they, you know, they can initially show lower gross margins as they build their core data set. Yep. But they also know that the DAS company can get to the point of, of scale. That database is extremely leverageable across that wide customer base. And so also the sales and marketing and customer sex costs in R&D tend to be much lower for a DAS company. And as I mentioned earlier, the, it just is indicative of the market. If they look to the public players that have achieved scale, they're very, very profitable. Yep. And the, the, you see these, like in the SaaS companies, often their CACs are either flat or even increasing over time. Whereas in the DAS companies, you see these CACs go down quite a bit over time. Exactly. Exactly right. And so the marginal cost of acquiring a company, both from a cost of goods sold as well as a marketing cost, is, is much more leverageable than the DAS. So I think that that all goes to play. And then, of course, the success of you know, Zoom Info hasn't hurt either. But but yeah, I, I think investors really are getting the different business models between SaaS and DAS. And by and large, I, I haven't seen any sort of negative bias toward DAS. Now, in the last six months, we've seen in for SaaS companies, we've seen valuations be slashed dramatically. In many cases, over 50% that have been slashed. Now, the DAS valuations were never quite as stratospheric as the SaaS valuation. So how have they come down relative to the SaaS companies? Yeah, that's a good question. So we track it. We have an index of public company DAS vendors, and they've largely outperformed the S&P 500 since 2020. However, the public DAS valuations in in this sector have been negatively impacted like SaaS in this market contraction. For example, I need to keep harping on Zoom Info, but they're kind of the poster child for NAS. But Zoom Info traded at something like 30 times revenue back in November and went to market peak. You know, it's yep. now half, half that at 15 times, which is still a nice premium to most other tech companies. Yep. And the broader index of public you know, DAS vendors is not contracted as much as the SaaS vendors, as you noted, largely because the public DAS vendors have that floor of, of being very, very profitable. So that provides a floor valuation versus some of the tech companies that are losing money. And th- those are the companies where multiples have been hardest hit. So I think the, the public companies, their level of profitability is providing a nice stability of floor. So they haven't gone down as much. Yeah, and if your EBITDA margins are actually 30%, then it's getting to the rule of 40 is a lot easier. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, that's right. What's interesting in this market, particularly on, uh, from the private investor side is what we're seeing is you don't see like the crazy multiples you might hear, might have heard about in 21 or 20, raising money at 30 to 40 times AR. I think yep. those are gone. And while the overall market multiples corrected in the public tech market, the, the private market never went up as much. So correspondingly, they, they haven't fallen as much. And deals are getting done because there's still a ton of private capital looking to be deployed. So the A companies will always continue to attract interest. 
maybe a couple of ticks down an A or multiple, but still good term sheets. The B companies are, might see a little tougher valuation on compression. And you're starting to see maybe a little more structure being introduced into, into term sheets now. But uh, overall, there's still a fairly high level of activity. What are the DAS companies, maybe ones that like our audience isn't super familiar with that you admire? I think you know, on the public side, companies that continue to be able to crank out 30% revenue growth with 30% profitability and get above the, that rule of 40. So you've seen a lot, two thirds of the public companies in DAS are over rule of 40 companies. So Elsevier, which is now, they changed their name, can't recall the name of, of Elsevier, but those folks have done very well. Uh, Relic, sorry. The S&P Global, just yep. you know, in the process of acquiring IHS, Marquee, Experian, Equifax, TransUnion, all these companies trade. And for, for our audience that maybe doesn't understand like the power of like an S&P Global and IHS, can you explain like what these companies do? Why are they so profitable? Why are they growing so well? One is just the level of scale. And, and it goes back to your, your concept of one or two or three leaders in each space. And once you get to that point, the marginal cost of acquiring another customer is very, very low. So they can leverage that data set. It's like a telecom company, you know, invested in their network, right? And, and yep. the marginal cost of, you know, getting that next customer is, you know, fairly, fairly low. So same thing here. It's, it's the, the core, the product is the data. Once you've got to scale and once you've got to dominance in that space, you can become very, very profitable. And so, you know, look at DNB and FactSet and SB Global. And there's just a whole group of those companies that have done very well. And then on the emergent side, you know, you saw companies go public last year, similar web with public and tech targets doing well. CoStar is a leader in the real estate yep. space. They perform very well. They're a they're a rule forty, probably a rule sixty company. Right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, I mean they're an so, incredible, they're an incredible yeah. company. Yeah. Why has a company like CoStar just done so well over the last 20 years? Is it just they have the right market? They've got an amazing product. They've got amazing leadership. Like, is it everything? Like, why have they done so well? I hate to be sort of vague, like, but it's it's everything, right? I mean, yeah. in order to get that, to get to that scale, it's I think now they've become a dominant player in the real estate space. And so it's very hard for other entrants to to get there because it's, you know, if you want, you know, real estate data, you go to CoStar. Yeah. And certainly if you were an investor over the last 20 years, that would have been an incredible stock to own. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, this has been amazing. Okay. Last question we ask all of our guests, which is what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? (laughs) I'll answer that question in the context of current capital markets climate for private companies. So there's a general sentiment that after you raise money, you can build the most value by a race to growth. And and then there's certainly truth to that, but that sometimes comes with less focus on the unit economics that drive that growth and the cash yeah. burn to support that growth. And clearly, while that message has been tempered a bit in the last three or four months in, in this market, growth stage companies are full of smart, ambitious people, kind of with deeply rooted expansion mindsets. So it's it's hard for them to think about maybe tempering growth a bit at the benefit of capital and, and, and profitability. So it's more important than ever, I would say, that founders and management think through how to get to a kind of that convergent business model, or at least move to a less dramatic cash burn, even if it may slow down the top line growth a bit. So that I would I would say that would be one thing that you, CEOs that listen to this would, in this environment particularly should to take heed of. 
Got it. So when your venture capitalists say grow, 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 you should think grow smartly or something. Exactly. I mean, the point is to ensure self-sustainability, right? In the event that future capital raises don't come to fruition. And honestly, what, what's more, the, those growth stage companies that demonstrate a strength through discipline during hard times, they really do gain credibility and, and the opportunity to be better prepared for those to take market share from struggling competitors is, is another reason why you want to think through that kind of messaging. Okay. Now I love your, the AGGC reports that you guys put out and stuff like that. Where can people find you on the broader interwebs? LinkedIn uh, is probably the best way to do it. You can also on agcpartners.com, you can reach out to me through that vehicle. My email's on there and it's rbuxton at agcpartners.com. All right. It's amazing. All right, Rob, thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun and and, uh, I really appreciate your deep knowledge about DAS. Thanks, Warren. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.